Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone. Welcome to Nice History. A short while ago, I, uh, I said something real stupid on Twitter. It was about Irish history. There was a massive pile on. I got cancelled. So what I decided to do was talk to Finn Duar, who is in charge of the wonderful Irish History podcast, and we sat and we worked it out. We worked out what is the right way to talk about the Irish War of Independence, which foolishly I described as a civil war within the United Kingdom, of which Ireland was a part. But as Finn describes to me, it was a reluctant and unequal part, and therefore the terminology of civil war is not helpful, useful in this case. This is what it's all about. Step away from social media have actual conversations with people, make new friends. It was a very cool experience. Uh, the Irish History Podcast, if you don't listen to it, it's a wonderful thing. I'm a regular listener. Go and check it out. At the moment, they've got wonderful uh, partisans stories on Irish stories from the Spanish Civil War. And we've also got Spanish Civil War coming up on this podcast as well. It was great talking to Finn. Uh, it's a big anniversary following the First World War. The British and Irish battled for control of the island of Ireland with enduring political, social and economic effects, which we're all talking about at the moment. Let's face it, this is contemporary stuff, everybody, like all the best history. Right, if you want to watch programmes on our new digital history channel, please do so. If you use code POD6, P-O-D-6, when you go to historyhit.tv, you get six weeks free access to the world's best history channel. It's awesome. It's so exciting. We built a history channel, everyone. It's working. We got subscribers on every continent. I'm not sure in Antarctica. If there are any, let me know. Uh, but every other continent, we got them. It's such an honour to be part of. Thank you very much. Thank you also for rating this podcast five stars and all that rubbish. Much appreciated. If you want, you're listening to this before the end of February 2020, uh, you can enter our special competition to win a huge, wonderful trip to Guernsey to look at all the Second World War stuff out there. So if you go to historyhit.com slash visit Guernsey, you've got uh, a day or two to enter. It closes at the end of February 2020. In the meantime, everybody, here's the wonderful Findua from the Irish History Podcast. Enjoy. Finn, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and setting me straight. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me on. So tell me, let's get started with a bit of the history. What I mean, what was going on a hundred years ago now in the in the winter and, and spring in Ireland? Ireland was about to enter, I suppose, the key phase in the Irish War of Independence, which was obviously gonna the aim of the war was to 
break most of Ireland or what would be most of Ireland at the time people had hoped for the entire island to break free of the United Kingdom. I suppose to explain to people maybe a bit, it might be worth just setting a bit of the scene in the build-up to it, in that Ireland had become part of the United Kingdom in 1800 uh, through the Act of Union, which came into effect the following year. But over the following century, there was various attempts to try and bring Ireland property into that union, but they failed repeatedly. Um, events like the Great Hunger, the, the famine of the 1840s, had a huge impact in Ireland and it had a terrible legacy um, where you have a majority of the Irish population feeling alienated from the United Kingdom and certainly not part of it in the way that obviously, say, people in England would have felt that they belonged to that kingdom. There was also other issues like religion, obviously separated the majority, about 80% of the Irish population from, uh, the 80% of the Irish population being Catholic in what was uh, constitutionally a, a Protestant kingdom. Um, obviously created the, this gap, but I, I, a lot of this crystallises, I suppose, and the tensions that have built up around poverty in Ireland and other issues crystallise around the First World War and uh, a key event during that war in Ireland being the Easter Rising, where a small group of rebels rise up in, opposi- in opposition to British rule in Ireland. Um, they're actually deeply unpopular at the time, but the reaction of the British government, which is um, overly oppressive to, the, to these rebels, uh, swings in support of them. And then general opposition to World War I in the country uh, cements support for these rebels. I don't know if that might explain a bit of the, uh, I suppose, building resentment, because I suppose it's important to recognise that the Irish War of Independence didn't fall from the sky. It was There was a lot more than what I've talked about there, but it's a series of building tensions that essentially build up over arguably 100 years, if not more. In the 19th century, when Irish voters are sending their... MPs to Parliament. They're, they're not. They're not voting for for quote unquote British parties, are they? I mean, they're, they're vote. They're sending um, representatives of of distinctly Irish political parties to to represent them in in Westminster. Yeah. So I suppose there's various different um, embodiments of this. But by the late 19th century, what you get is two main political parties. One being the Irish Parliamentary Party in favour of Home Rule. That's um, I suppose devolved government. Ireland would have stayed within the Union under those terms. And then you have the Unionists, uh, Irish Unionists, who believe in the closest possible ties to uh, uh, to Britain and England. Um, and those, they dominate politics. Now, in the early 20th century, that changes where the Home Rule or Nationalist movement is replaced by a more Republican organisation um, which is doesn't see Home Rule or a devolved parliament as enough. What they want is independence. That's so fascinating. What, what do, so you mentioned the First World War. Is, is, is it the war? Is it the response to the Easter Uprising in particular? What, what is going on that turns people from home, home rulers to Republicans to, to um, separatists, or whatever, you know, whatever the word is, in, in, in that period? That journey is influenced by uh, lots of different things. Um, I, I do think some of those issues that I pointed out, the, the historical tension does influence it, but that, uh, that's only a stage. And the First World War, though, is the catalyst. And like in so many countries around Europe, it does transform politics. There are events that really have a huge impact in Ireland, uh, one of them being the conscription crisis of 1918. Uh, Ireland hadn't been subject to conscription but in 1918, as Britain faced a manpower shortage, uh, there was a threat to introduce conscription 
into Ireland, um, pretty much all aspects of the nationalist movement, either home rulers or Republicans, oppose this. But I think it's fair to say it was um, the Republican movement which catalyzed on this growing opposition that Irish people didn't want to go or certainly large sections of the Irish population felt that war had very little to do with them. I should also say you also have a, a very strong labour movement at this point that organises a general strike against introducing conscription into Ireland and ultimately conscription, even though it was voted through Parliament, um, wasn't introduced into Ireland. So that, I suppose, creates a growing climate. Then uh, the, the famous election of 1918, uh, that uh, sees... Republicans or nationalists in Sinn Féin sweep the boards in terms of nationalist politics in Ireland and they come to power and that I suppose is a reflection of this transformation that has gone on. The Home Rule who party who had been in favour of devolved government and um, had backed World War One quite disastrously sending thousands of Irish people to die on the Western Front um, and they had been affected by that. So, yeah, the First World War is part of this, um, catal- is the catalyst. And obviously all the other changes that go on in that war, that, that spring from that war, the, the social changes as well. You, you have the emergence of lots of other movements, including a, a, a women's movement as well, that's somewhat tied into this as well. Um, but Irish society is dramatically changed by that. So by early 1919, you have uh, Sinn Féin politicians, Republicans, who have said in their manifesto that they will not go to Westminster, but instead will convene a parliament in Dublin. And they do that in January 1919. And on the same day, two um, or, uh, two policemen are shot in South Tipperary, which is considered to be the opening shots of the Irish War of Independence. So that period of January 1919, after the election of December 1918, where you have, I suppose, the political wing striking out for independence, but you also have Irish volunteers in a uh, uh, striking out on a, I suppose, a milit- starting effectively what's recognised as the start of the military campaign as well. Uh, and so quite rapidly, the the uh, nationalists, the um, freedom fighters, that they take over, particularly the countryside, do they? They make it almost untenable for uh, central government to have, to have its agents in the countryside. Pretty much. Like, I think if you were in Ireland in 1919, the opening stage of the war is almost like... Um, it's not a full-scale war by any means. You're having policemen targeted. But over that year, it increases in intensity. What you have is things like um, rural police stations being attacked, then eventually evacuated. And after they're evacuated, what is becoming or devolving or evolving into the IRA, Irish Republican Army, burns down these uh, um, RIC barracks. So essentially, the British... Uh, presence through this police force um, evaporates in huge, as you say, sections of the countryside. Now, this does create a problem in that the these police uh, withdraw into the cities. The IRA are never during at any point in the War of Independence strong enough to uh, drive the um, say the, the the like I suppose what you might call it into the sea. You know, a, a full like withdrawal of the British presence in Ireland uh, from a military perspective is never really on the cards. But what they are doing very successfully is making um, rule in Ireland um, impossible. So huge swathes of the country are no longer really uh, under um, the control of of the government in in London. Uh, side by side with that, though, the Republican movement have done lots of um, other things. They've set up their own infrastructure of government. They're holding courts, and there's basically you've got two systems of government. And then 
what is a key key part of this, and I suppose is often written out of it, is the role again of the labour movement in the later stage of 1920, as the war is really intensifying. And um, they launch a strike on uh, the transport workers refuse to handle war goods. So the British Army have huge problems. Now, the war is largely being fought, I should say, by um, the various aspects of the police, uh, the RIC, and then two branches, I suppose, within that. um, The Notorious, uh, I don't know if people have ever heard of them, the Black and Tans, a quasi-paramilitary force sent to Ireland, and then the Auxiliaries, uh, another uh, force uh, raised and sent to Ireland. And these are the groups that largely fight the war what 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 about the what about the the sectarianism that we hear about in Ireland? Because uh, was, is this something? Was there also sectarian tensions here between communities of Catholics and Protestants around Ireland? But I guess particularly towards the, into the north, into the province of Ulster. Yes. Yeah, so the war, like any war, varies from place to place, region to region, and is influenced by um, local dynamics. Uh, on community, but certainly in the northeast in particular. So, like Ulster comprises of the nine northern counties, but certainly in the northeast, where you've got a higher concentration, say, of Protestants than maybe in other parts of the country, tensions certainly arise. Uh, you have this, it's not just because there's large numbers of Protestants, these communities tend to be unionist in outlook. And actually, Ireland, it's worth saying, is partitioned in 1920. In the middle of the war, um, it's a very complicated story, but this kind of highlights the fact that there's actually, I suppose, in in a way, two wars going on. But to come back to your point, yeah, there's a very sectarian nature of the war, in uh, particularly in Belfast, where thousands, for example, of Catholic workers are driven out of the shipyards, the big employer in Belfast at the time. You have very serious sectarian um, murders as well on, on both sides, it should be said. Whereas in other parts of the country, it tends to maybe follow more of a, I suppose, a political war in the, in the sense that you have members of the IRA attacking the police, whereas in parts of Ulster, for example, in the northeast in particular, uh, you do have this more sectarian um, nature to the war where you have the Ulster Volunteer Force and the IRA in what is often just dismissed as riots in papers at the time, but is much more a sectarian war. But it shouldn't be, I guess as well, that shouldn't be overstated in terms of the wider war across the island. So, so in terms of this wider war, what kind of military operations are we talking about in, in uh, say, say, rural counties like you know, Tipperary, Mayo, some of that? Uh, so in, in not, not in what is now the North, you know, Northern Ireland. Uh, what, what, how big are these? Are, are these are army units moving in? Are they taking, is it like a counterinsurgency like you might see in you know, Afghanistan today? Or is it, is it policing actions, constant attacks on the police, driving the police out of rural areas? It varies massively. Certainly towards the end of the war, you start to get, on both sides, it should be said, much larger scale operations. But there are, as the British, I suppose, military apparatus through the police, army, etc., withdraw into the cities, what they then have to do are these very huge sweeps through the countryside in what I suppose it's quite ineffective ultimately because they're not, you know, they're moving through an area that might only pass through it every second, uh, every second week or something um they're obviously very obviously coming uh 
you know, people can see them arriving in advance, so they're not really that effective. That said, this what is generally regarded as a huge mistake of this, um, I suppose, if you want to call it the counterinsurgency operation from the British point of view, is that the war is waged against the population. So several towns are burned. Uh, Cork City, for example, is burned. The Lord Mayor of Cork, Tomás McCurtain, is shot dead by um, members of the RIC um and this man is a democratically elected mayor. It would be like if the mayor of London or Manchester or somewhere like that was shot dead. Um, there are numerous cases of innocent people being shot. So the war becomes, I suppose, if you want to call it a very dirty war, but obviously as well, when this starts to happen, it's counterproductive because what you have is um, large, the war is being exacted against the population and naturally the reaction of the population is to move in favour even more so of the Republican movement. Um, it also has a disastrous impact, I think, in England as well, where um, because Ireland is so close, um, these, say, for example, um, in other parts of the, the empire at the time, say, for example, Kenya or further afield, newspaper reporters couldn't really get there and get the story back. But, for example, the town of Balbriggan is burned and it's, Balbriggan is only outside Dublin. So a journalist, say, from the Manchester Guardian can come to Dublin, go out to Balbriggan and, do, uh, and write a story and have it submitted, say, within 24 hours. So this makes the war and some of these atrocities that are carried out in the war, um, they've become very... Uh, they're, uh, the, the the British public find out about these very quickly. And this certainly, I think, does hamper the British war effort in terms of if they had wanted to escalate the war. Now, there are other factors like the fact that um, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom um, and World War One obviously had just come to an end. So the appetite in Britain for another war is quite limited. So obviously, you know, I got I got massive trouble. I got uh, I, I I was burned out of Twitter for about forty eight hours for suggesting <laughs> you know for suggesting it's a civil war because that term implies that 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 Ireland and and Britain were part of the same unitary state, the, the UK, which of course on paper they were, but but it was that was not seems legitimate by many living in Ireland. Totally accept that. But is is there a sense in which? The British people also went. This is not. A, this is this is a war of of colonial aggression. This. I mean, did the government was the go or, or were the British electorate quite? Um, what was their view? Is it possible to judge what their view on this on this ongoing war in Ireland was? I think that varies massively. There is a feature, obviously, of Irish emigration to Britain, which had continually happened since the Great Famine ended in the early 1850s. You have this continuous wave of emigration from Ireland. The population around the time of the War of Independence is in and around 4 million people. Prior to the famine, it had been 8.5 million. So you have this constant stream out of Ireland. So you have communities in England that are have this sympathy. Um, there were big arson attacks in England carried out by the IRA um, in later 1920. Um, which obviously bring the war. Now, that doesn't mean, I, I, I'm not in any way saying that there's a sympathy among the wider population. That said, though, in terms of this issue of the, uh, was it a, a civil war? It is interesting that several British politicians, and you can see this continuously through the later 19th century, definitely refer to Ireland as being this problem that comes on the desk of a British prime minister in a way that I don't think they would talk about. Like Churchill talks about it in the House of Commons in 1922, that this Irish problem continually comes onto the desk of this great nation, but this great nation being Britain, not the United Kingdom. And I think you can't really look at it as a civil war 
again, it comes back to this issue of, of when Ireland was brought into the Union. So this happened, as I said at the start there, in 1801. But Ireland was essentially ruled through coercion for the entire century. So between 1801 and when the 26 counties in Ireland gained partial independence in early 1922, um, there's over 100 coercion acts which effectively suspend um, habeas corpus and most uh, rights. that are, And these are introduced continually through the, uh, the 19th century. And that's how Ireland is ruled. And that is indicative, not just of a national sentiment, because that's too simplistic, but of the wider problems in Irish society. Ireland was much poorer than the rest of the United Kingdom. Ireland uh, was looked down on, and there's no question about that in terms of a it's worth bearing in mind that in the early 20th century the world was even more racialized than it is today I think and that Irish people were definitely seen as lower down on that pecking order than um, people in Britain and you can see that in for like the most notorious examples of that are Punch magazine which carries horrifically racist depictions of Irish people but what I'm getting at here is that I don't think for all these reasons um, that Ireland was really seen as part of um um, the United Kingdom and I think certainly in Ireland a large number of the population saw Ireland and obviously this would change over time but Ireland was unquestionably different yes, it's, uh, I mean, people it's, definitely felt sorry go on Nick. well no, it's really interesting you say that because of course a lot of the polling around Brexit suggests that the British people aren't that fussed if if you know, if British Brexiteers aren't that fussed if, if it forces Northern Ireland out of the UK you know the UK feels even with a hundred years more maturity than it's than than it did in 1920 it still feels like a kind of legal entity rather than it rather than a, a coherent nation state even today and i can imagine obviously a hundred years back it, it, it had only existed for a much shorter amount of time and even more people within it didn't want to be in it so therefore it's more like an algerian french union which was you know never a, never a, re, a union realized on the ground yeah for sure i i, I think like I, I suppose I was actually thinking about this before we we talked, and I think maybe for people in Britain to get a sense of it. One thing I was actually I was thinking about it in the context of Brexit, and it's like f- nearly fifty years since people in Britain joined the European Union, but judging on the conversations that happened around Brexit, very few people in Britain ever saw themselves as being part of that. And I suppose Ireland being part of the Union is only twice as long as that, so maybe that might help people get that. It, as you're saying, it's very much a, a legalistic. Um, there are obviously, and I'm sure it's the same around Brexit, there are people who, who did see themselves as being part of uh, the United Kingdom. We're very proud of that fact and it's very important to recognise that these were Irish people. Um, but they were a minority, I think. And you can see that through f- most elections as Ireland gains a, a democratic system through the 19th century. It tends to be people who favour uh, more autonomy of various different kinds, be it home rule or ultimately independence, tend to dominate those elections. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries 
landed on Japanese shores and followed Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Um, we just finished the story, and so in 2020, in 1920 rather, Ireland is... is Partition. It's obviously insanely complicated, but uh, the, the 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 war of independence in in the, what it would become the South, the Republic of Ireland, sort of comes to an end. Is replaced by a different kind of war. Uh, what, what the, the, because because just yeah, tell the audience what the, the British government effectively give in and and make a deal that if they can retain these northern counties of of Ulster with their predominant with their larger pop, uh, population of Protestants. Um, that the that the South can, although, although there's a fudge, it doesn't become a republic immediately, does it? No, I think um, what what is important is during the war, uh, the British government are adamant that the situation of Ulster will be resolved before they deal with the republican movement. And it's, Lloyd George recognises quite early on that they're going to have to, at some point, talk to Sinn Féin and the IRA, that they there's going to have to be a political solution to this war. Uh, they can control the cities, but the IRA will largely control the countryside. Um, so they do resolve the situation in Ulster through introducing two home rule uh, parliaments, one in Belfast and one in Dublin. The one in Belfast is established. The one in Dublin never takes off because most of the electorate representatives refuse to sit in it. But after that happens, in the summer of 1921, you have a truce. Uh, that leads to negotiations that happen in London uh, in late 1921, and that leads to the treaty. Now, the treaty gives huge uh, rights, a huge amount of independence rather to Ireland, but what's crucial is that Ireland is not part of, or sorry, what's crucial is that Ireland is not fully independent. And when I say Ireland, I'm referring to the 26 southern counties. By this point, the six northeastern counties of Ulster or six of the nine northeastern counties of Ulster have become uh, part of what is now Northern Ireland. Um, 
And what you have is Ireland has, uh, as I say, increased rights, but it's a, a, it gets dominion status essentially. And this leads to, this is one of the con- contributing reasons to a, a, a factors that leads to a civil war in Ireland because the IRA splits over this, over whether um, this is truly independence. Is this what they were fighting for? The IRA splits over that issue and you have a civil war in Ireland between 1922 that into early 1924, although the intense period of fighting ends in 1923. Um, so speaking of civil war, we should let's just let's talk about why it provoked such anger when I when I tweet that the UK experienced civil war a hundred years ago. Um, I, I guess it's you know people. Um, if if you refuse to accept the UK was a legitimate entity, entity, it's it's you know you don't therefore accept that it's a civil war because it's a war of it's a, it's a, a war of fighting for freedom, it's a, a war against colonial colonial oppression against against imperialism. Yeah, like I, I think it is back to this th- issue of like Ireland's status in the Union was always questionable. Why was it there? It had been brought in, as I say, under force. I think a good example as well is, say, for example, Scotland being the other country that's part, because Wales, I suppose, has a very, very long his- historic connection. But Scotland being brought in in 1707, prior to that, you had had a king of Scotland that had become king of England. I think it's absolutely unimaginable though that you would have had a king of Ireland that could become a king of England um, I think Ireland occupied this very different place partly due to religion um, partly due to very uh, partly due to other cultural differences but there is this um, issue I, I think and I, I don't think it's just an Irish issue I think in Britain as well Ireland was not seen as an equal part of the union Um Theoretically, like Dublin was the same as Liverpool or Manchester or Glasgow or Edinburgh. In reality, though, it was very different. And certainly then when you went outside Dublin, that was um, amplified. And events like the Great Famine certainly uh, uh, reinforced this issue in Irish people's minds, where the British government, at the best reading of events, reacted very slowly to that. And then when they did intervene, arguably made the situation worse. Now, people have always argued in Ireland, and most historians, I think, would accept that had that been happening, say, in the home counties, the reaction would have been very different. And I guess what I'm getting at here is that Ireland's place within the Union was never really more than... It had never been incorporated properly. Um, It had always been... It was on a sort both of, sides, somewhat different. It was a sort of legal, like, as I say, like like France incorporating "quote unquote" Algeria as part yes. of France. It doesn't. It is. It actually is a. No, that totally makes sense. But I, you know, and I was I was amazed because I um, received you know uh, uh, hate tweets from from Sinn Fein politicians. <laughs> I felt my, my I'd, I'd arrived because <laughs> because by using the term civil war, I implied that the, the British and Irish were part of a you know a single political entity. That ended up fighting each other, of course, with a separatist agenda, like in Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan civil war. It's both a civil war and a freedom, you know, a freedom fight. Um, and I was amazed at the, the the strength of feeling. Well, I wasn't that amazed. I've got a lot, you know, I, I know I'm pretty well, but I, I was, you know, pretty surprised at the strength of feeling. And and people saying this is like this is after a hundred years, you still can't accept that the, the outcome of this war, which was astonishing to me, you know, because I obviously do accept <laughs> the outcome. Of the, <laughs> Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and indeed, you know, ongoing issues around the state of Northern Ireland is an issue for, you know, people living there and, and on the island of Ireland. So, but, but it's something that, you know, I, I touched an extreme, can you try and explain to people who, who might, you know, who don't come from that culture, like, why is, why is that, why is the naming of those wars so, inc- like, 
so important? Um, well, I think probably it goes back to the fact that Ireland um, is an independent country today. Um, a civil war might imply that maybe Ireland should be part of the Union, um, whereas I think a majority of Irish people, and judging on polls, there's an increasing feeling that Ireland should be unified and an independent country. I think probably what some of it may have to do with, though, is also a lot of the conversations around Brexit in England illustrated uh, what really surprised a lot of people in Ireland, how little people in England had any idea. Oh, Like, God, for yeah. example, absolutely. N- not just, like, you know, if someone in general public doesn't know very much about Ireland, I don't have an issue maybe, you know, really with that. What I do have and what most Irish people did have an issue is that very, very senior politicians in Britain didn't understand, like Dominic Raab saying he hadn't read the Good Friday Agreement. That really made people go, like, do you know anything about this country? Do you know anything about the nature of the conflict that has gone on in Ireland or in the north over the last 40, 50 years? And then historically, obviously, what we've been talking about. And I think those issues have maybe brought a lot of this to the fore in Ireland in terms of like how we see ourselves and very much though how people in Britain see Ireland and that have uh, like the, the, a lot of the comments are like pretty Patel's comment about starving the Irish into submission, which was like, do you not know anything about this, the history of this country? And I don't know if anyone could have said anything more insensitive than that comment about talking about food and Ireland in terms of the, this was around the negotiations of the backstop. Um, and I think these things, as I say, brought to the fore in Ireland um, maybe the lack of understanding. Um, and I, I I think people in Ireland have a much better understanding of history in Britain. That's for obvious reasons. Um, but I think this is related a bit to maybe what we're talking about, is that like the, the two countries, for lots of reasons, are, are quite different. And because Ireland was forced to be brought into the Union for 120 years odd, um, that probably didn't really ever change the fact, you know. No, I, I think. Listen, I think people in Britain, I think people in England, in particular, are blind to Ireland. I think it's. I think it's remarkable. I think if if you if you go into a pub and ask a hundred people uh, what's the closest European country uh, I th- to the UK, I think eighty uh, percent of them would say France, uh, and it's just a source yeah, okay, of, a yeah, source of yeah. constant amazement. However, uh, as a man who's applying for an Irish passport at the moment, I um, I say good <laughs> riddance to those damned Englishmen. Uh, so um, thank you, thank you very much. Come setting me straight, uh, um, and um, I look forward to. Uh, having a pint with you next time I'm in Ireland uh, and we can continue the conversation great stuff give me a shout uh, what is let's tell everyone about your podcast which is totally brilliant annoyingly brilliant people listen to yours instead of mine it's infuriating so tell everyone what it's, when where they can find it it's uh, the Irish History Podcast and you can find it at irishhistorypodcast.ie and there's lots of podcasts about uh, everything I've been talking about uh, here including things like the Great Famine and lots of other interesting chapters about Irish history Yep, that's great, Finn. Keep it up. Doing lots of fantastic things there. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate that. And perhaps we'll talk again because we've got a lot of big anniversaries coming up over the next uh, over the next few months and years which define the ongoing relationship between uh, Britain and Ireland. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks, man. I feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible 
not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's a tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.